much. My name is Linda. Uh, I am an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is 9-21-2010. I have a sponsor um, and I have a home group in New Rochelle, New York. Uh, and I am grateful to be here of service tonight. And thank you for all the laughter when I first came into the, to the Zoom room. Um, it's really good to hear laughter. Um, where I came from, I wasn't laughing. And chances are many of you were in that same place. So I'm just going to read a, just a quick thing on page 417. Um, when I was asked to pick a line, this is the one that came to my mind. So I'm on 417. Acceptance was the answer. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. A little bit further down, it says, when I complain about me or about you, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. For years, I was sure the worst thing that could happen to a nice guy like me would be that I would turn out to be an alcoholic. Today, I find it's the best thing that has ever happened to me. This proves I don't know what's good for me. And if I don't know what's good for me, then I don't know what's good or bad for you or for anyone. And when I was asked to pick a line, that line was the first one that came to my mind, right? Because acceptance is the answer to all of my problems. And early on in sobriety, I didn't understand that. And it took some time to take the action. So I'll start a little bit about what qualifies me to be here as an alcoholic. Um, I grew up with um, an Irish mother and a Greek father. And I love to say that I could get a good tan and drink a lot. Um, and as if that was the only endearing things about myself, right? So that tells you a little bit about uh, the amount of self-esteem I had. I grew up always feeling different, um, out of alignment is what I like to say now that I understand what that is. Um, just not, not in focus to the world, constantly feeling not enough. Um, if I were to describe my alcoholism, I would describe it as a case of the not enoughs. I've spent my entire life feeling like I just wasn't enough, not pretty enough, not smart enough, not thin enough, not good enough. And yet somehow when I found alcohol, I felt like I was enough. I was the kind of drinker um, that blacked out. I actually didn't understand that there was any other way to drink. Um, I was drinking to run away from my life. I was drinking to run away from the pain. And I was drinking to make myself feel better. Now, the irony to that is that it's going to do the exact opposite with time. It's going to make me feel worse about myself. And I could sit here and tell you tons of stories about my alcoholic uh, life. Um, they often include hurting people I never intended to hurt. Um, they often include coming home without my shoes. Um, those stories include not coming home with the person I left with. Um, those stories include, you know, saying I don't want to get drunk and I get drunk. And I remember this time, uh, right before I had decided it was time to come to AA, that I had gone to my uncle's 70th birthday party and um, 
the entire time I'm driving there, I'm saying, I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to get drunk, right? How many times do we say this story to ourselves? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I get to the party and it's an open bar and I am hiding bottles of wine underneath the table at an open bar. And that tells you a little bit about the kind of drinker I was because I am so afraid that it's going to run out. I'm so afraid that the party's going to end and there's going to be no more alcohol. And so I'm hiding this alcohol. And by the end of the night, um, I'm making out with somebody I shouldn't be making out with. And that's the story of how most of my drinking went. I would say to myself, I'm not going to do something. And then I end up doing something. There's this part in Bill's story where Lois goes to work. And it's a pretty subtle line, right? It talks about Lois going to work um, because Bill's such a drunk. And I stop at that line and I always think like it was unheard of at that moment in time or that part of history that a woman would go to work in place of her man. And I stop and I say to myself, like, where in my drinking was I doing things that were unheard of? Where was I doing things that I never intended to do? Where was I doing things that I shouldn't have been doing? What alcohol gave me was filled this emptiness that I had inside. I spent so much of my life trying to find external things to fill this internal condition. And I would do that for a very big part of my life. When I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had already tried many different things. Uh, Therapy, uh, I had tried uh, running the New York City Marathon. I had convinced myself that if I could run a marathon, there was no way I could be an alcoholic, right? Because as if there's any sort of connection on that. And yet I finish running that marathon and I drink a case of beer and I eat like a hundred cannolis and surprise, surprise, I've got all the problems I had before I decided to run that marathon. And what that story tells me is that whether I'm physically running or metaphorically running in my life, the pain becomes so big that eventually I get caught. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and um, I have a good friend who's in AA. And so um, he basically had said like, We've been waiting for you, um, which was a resentment right from the beginning, but uh, I knew that he was right. And I come into AA and I hate everything I'm being told. I'm told I've got to stop drinking. I've got to call women. I've got to make coffee. I've got to take a commitment. I can't date people in AA. And I'm like, I thought this was like just about quitting drinking. Like you people are asking me to do a lot of things. And of course, I come in here and I do none of them. I am frustrated. I am completely blocked to this idea of God. Um, The tallest guy in the room stands up and I'm like, that's him. I'm going to fall in love with him. We're going to live a happy AA life together. And before I know it, I'm visiting him at Rikers on the weekend. And I, I, in case that joke doesn't translate, it's basically like, you know, the jail, right? Because that's where my best ideas get me dating somebody in AA and visiting him on the weekends in in jail. So I come in and I pull together a couple of months and I am in pain. And for me, this is always a really important piece to share because I had this delusion that once I stopped drinking, my life was going to get miraculously better. I thought everybody would be happy. Everybody would be off my back. I could start, you know, being a good partner And yet somehow or other, I stopped drinking and my life gets worse. And I was out for a run and a car quickly came out in front of me. 
And I thought to myself with about eight months sober, I wish that car hit me. And then I had some very great people in my life who said, you don't have to live like this. Of course, I didn't listen to that right away. I relapsed again um, and I would go out one more final time. The date of my final drink is 9-21-2010, a very important date that I'm sure will come up at some point um, as I'm sharing today. But I went out that night hoping to hide from the pain that I had. I went out that final day drinking, thinking, I, I, am, I am so hurt and so broken that alcohol is going to make this better. And what that night brings me is I'm cracking PBR cans on my head at a dive bar in the Bronx um, with a bunch of old guys taking shots. And the irony to that is like, that's the last place on earth that I really want to be, right? I don't want to be in that pain, yet somehow or other, that's where I end up. And so I could continue to tell you all these stories about my, my drinking life, but it's important to sort of talk about how it gets better. When I looked at that first step, I was confusing consequence with unmanageability and kind of keeping with this idea of acceptance is I had to accept the difference between consequence and unmanageability. I used to think because I would throw up on people and lose my shoes and all those things I just said before that that was the unmanageability. What that was, was the consequence of my actions to go out and drink. The unmanageability is that even though I didn't want to, I was still doing it. The unmanageability is that even though I say I'm not going to get drunk, I end up getting drunk. And that's a big difference because we talk about this story right in the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and we immediately go to this place of like, I'm Mr. Hyde right? I turn into this monster. I'm this terrible, horrible person. Yet the real unmanageability is that I'm Dr. Jekyll, that I will drink the poison no matter what. I drink the poison, even though I know I'm going to turn into this monster. And that's what my alcoholism is. It's a delusion, right? Being an alcoholic, what it does to me is tell me that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not anything enough. And yet when I put it into my body, I have a delusion that I am suddenly enough, which just goes to show you that it's such a conflict, right? We're constantly getting out of this alignment. I learned that I have this abnormal sensitivity to alcohol. And I remember thinking like, well, that's a cop-out, right? Like I've got an allergy, like what a cop-out sentence, right? Try explaining that to someone who's not an alcoholic. I've got an allergy to it. What I really had to understand is that having an allergy or like an abnormal sensitivity is it, it's to things that usually aren't harmful. And what I mean by that is if we all drank bleach, we would all get sick. But yet some of us can eat strawberries and others can't. And that's a huge difference when I think about, and I accept that I'm an alcoholic. It means that other people can drink normally. It means my mom will have a half a glass of wine with some soda water in it. And she'll say, I don't like the way I feel. I feel out of control. And I'm like, uh, that's why we drink. Like, what are you talking about? Who stops at that point? I constantly felt that I was just different, that I didn't fit in. And I started to learn that alcohol was my answer to all of those things. When I look at that first step and I think like the unmanageability is I will drink no matter what. It means I've got to keep going. 
And thank God, I, I, I mean, now I have a very good relationship with God. I did not in the beginning. Thank God, one of them actually happens to be on this meeting. I had the kind of people in my life who were willing to tell me the truth, no matter how painful it was, because they cared more about saving my life than saving my feelings. And they threw me in a car and brought me to this meeting that I was miserable at. And I was miserable there because I was disturbed by what they were saying. And they were happy. I thought, how are these people happy? Like, I'm miserable. And I sat in the back and he gave me fruit snacks. He told me to stop talking, eat these fruit snacks, and just listen. What happened at that meeting is I realized I too could be happy and joyous and free if I took some action. The problem to that was that they told me I would have to find God. And I thought there is absolutely no way that a woman like me is ever going to believe in God. I thought I was different. And that's the thing about alcoholism. It is the great equalizer. Doesn't matter how much money you have, the color of your skin, your gender, it, it doesn't care. It brings us all to our knees. It brings us all to a place that we don't want to be. And what I came to understand was that on 9-21-2001, right, same sobriety date, I had gone through a very um, painful assault um, in New York City. Um, I had been sexually assaulted and I woke up in a hotel room left to die. There's absolutely no coincidence that the day of my assault is the same exact day that I would get sober many years later. And I share that story with brevity only because I think so many of us carry something. We carry the thing, the thing that makes us drink, the thing that separates us from God, the thing that separates us from people. And for me, it was that thing. And so when I was told that I had to find God or die an alcoholic death, I literally said to my sponsor, how bad is the alcoholic death? Am I dying in my sleep? Am I getting hit by a bus? Like how dramatic is it? Because this idea that I would have to trust in something else when I had been in so much pain in the things that had happened to my life, I thought it's impossible. I love when it talks about, you know, being blinded by the ugliness of the trees. And like, that's my life, right? Because something happened, I cannot see any of the good. And I would hold on to this thing for as long as I possibly could. And yet we learn that inside each and every one of us is the fundamental idea of God. It just happens to be blocked. And for me, it was blocked by the stuff, the things, right? All the things that had happened in my life was keeping me blocked. The irony to that all is just kind of want you all to think about your drinking days, or maybe you've done some other non-conference approved things. And um, how many times did you take those things with zero question? I remember when I was in college, we used to drink jungle juice out of a garbage can and we would put all the stuff in the garbage. I mean, God only knows what was in it, right? We put everything into this garbage can. And I would take my red cup and I would dip it into the garbage can and I would take it. Never asked what was in it. Never asked what would happen to me. But somebody said, take this, you're going to feel better. Yet somehow or other, I'm standing on the line of that second step. And somebody says, are you willing to take the action to find something that's going to make you feel better? And I'm like, man, that sounds like a lot. Like, how much time is that going to take? Like, you know, yeah. 
Yet the entire time the faith was there because I had done things without asking question because I believed it was going to make me feel better. The faith was there. At that point, I just had to convince myself. And not only was it the first time I went through the steps, but the other times that I went through the steps, I had to believe and accept that it wasn't me, that I am insane. I am senseless. I am not of sound mind. The same exact place that I concede to my innermost self that I am alcoholic is the same exact place that I make permission for God to come in. For me, I believe that that's deep down inside of me. When I accept that I am an alcoholic, one that will drink no matter what, maybe you've got some time, right? We can talk about character defects in the same way we talk about our drinking. When I believe that my alcoholism is going to solve itself with alcohol, character defects, or God, that's what I am as an alcoholic. And looking at that second step, I think about the ugliness of the trees, the assault that I had gone through. I've questioned God. And I think if you had the life that I had, you too would not believe in God. And yet somehow or other, what I call the 51% saves my life. That moment in time, I was 1%, 1% more willing to go through with these steps than I was to live the life that I was living. That window doesn't have to be massive. I just had to believe, like I do every day, right? Surrendering every single day, that not only am I not in control, I can't be in control of anybody else's life either, which is exactly what that third step tells me. I have to accept that it's not me, and I have to accept that it's somebody else, and I have to accept the same way that I take that third step to say, I cannot run my own life, which, by the way, is a great hint for what it's going to be like when I'm sponsoring. I concede that I am not an al- that I'm an alcoholic and cannot run my own life, which means I can't run yours either. When I looked at that third step, it was very important for me to understand what it is of the bondage of self. I think I would first go through that prayer and I'd be like, why isn't my life getting better? Like, I don't understand. Like, I'm saying the prayer. What's happening? What I was forgetting to do was that we ask God to remove these things so that we can be helpful to other people. It's a part of the prayer we, we tend to forget, right? Because we, we go in and we say, relieve me of the bondage of self, take away my difficulties, because we, of course, want all of those things to happen. I say today, defining those character defects defining the bondage has absolutely changed how I feel in my own sobriety. If you have never, it's something I always tell my sponsees to do is to write your own third step, right? It says the wording of course was quite optional. Have you ever sat down to write your own third step, defined what the bondage is, defined what your character defects are? I've got to be specific to God when I say those things. I'm a very visual person. And so I would always explain that in the second step, right? We talk about this fundamental idea of God. I believe that all of us were born with a very shiny, shiny, beautiful marble and God placed it into each and every one of us. And then what happened with time, with my character defects, with my alcoholism, I dirtied up that marble. It became not what God intended it to be. When I take that third step, I am basically saying, God, I'm giving you back this marble. Even if I don't believe 100%, 1%, 
willing to just let this piece go. And so I turn over this shiny marble and we'll get it later. And then we'll spend the rest of our lives helping other people shine their marbles. And what happens in that third step is I realized, even though my life is painful, and even though it's not going the way I want it to go, I am terrified, terrified to get out of my own way. I always like to explain that I buy furniture from Ikea. And when I make that furniture and it looks great, I literally will say to myself, I am so good. Like, I, I mean, I built this whole thing by myself. I don't need a man. I could do this whole thing. And then when it doesn't actually look right, I think, see, if I just had a man, what are those people at Ikea doing? This thing is so stupid. And what does that story tell me? That when things are going right, I believe it's me. And when things are going wrong, I believe it's you. And what that third step is telling me, I have got to get out of my way and turn everything over to this thing. 1%. I just have to be 1%. I have to believe that liquor is but a symptom. And that was really hard to understand because I had every intention of coming into Alcoholics Anonymous and quitting drinking and learning to drink like a lady, right? Sex in the city was really big at the height of my drinking. And I'd be like, I just want to get dressed up like these pretty ladies and drink those like really fun drinks. But remember, I'm a, I'm a lady that cracks beer cans on her head. So I'm far from drinking like a lady. I had to get down to this, to this piece of me to understand where the spiritual disease was. And that's what my fourth step was and continues to be. I've done several four steps in the time I've been sober. Um, for me, I believe any major life change warrants another fourth step and fifth step. Um, so when I got into a relationship, when I got out of that relationship, when I went to graduate school, when I graduated graduate school, because usually pretty big things in our lives kick up some pretty big character defects and some pretty big resentments. When I first did my fourth step, I said to my sponsor, obviously, I've got this thing against the people that assaulted me. And she said, you did nothing in that case. And so we're going to put that aside. For whatever reason, that was the direction at the time. That's what God felt that she needed to say. I would later learn very much that I would have to look at that. But what this four step is accepting that I have a part in everything, which is hard to believe because we go into that and we're like, it's everybody else. Remember, look at all these people. Everybody's at fault. I'll share with you what happened. Later on, I had had some time sober um, and I was in a meeting and I maybe was like less than a year sober. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, I'm going to go drink. I'm like over it, sort of like over this basement stuff. I'm like, like over talking about my feelings and I'm going to drink. And so I went to my house and prepared to drink and there was a knock on the door. And it was the guy from the meeting. And he said, there's something on your four-step that you missed. And I was like, who are you? Like, what do you think you are? And somewhere between wanting to punch him in the face and hug him, I, God allowed me to let him in my house. What I did with that man, and there's absolutely no coincidence that it was a man, was I looked at what had happened to me. And while I was angry, at the people that had assaulted me, what I learned in that moment of that inventory was while I had not assaulted anybody in the way that I had been assaulted, I could recognize the character defects of taking things that weren't mine, 
hurting people, pushing people away as a result of what had happened to me, being angry at the world, feeling entitled. And that is my part. And so maybe there's something going on in your life that you're still holding on to. I ask you to ask God to help you see it differently, to put on the shelf the actual thing, my case, the actual assault, and look at how I lived my life for the next 15 years as a result of what happened to me. And more importantly, this might not be popular, but I will say it. We often talk about men with the men, women with the women. And that is true when I first came around. Had I not been open to sitting with this man to do this work in a way that I believed God had intended us to do, I wouldn't be where I am today. I don't get to decide when the help comes. And I don't get to decide when I get to be helpful. When the door knocks, we are to answer it, despite what our old ideas and beliefs may be. And God works in all sorts of ways. I wasn't meant to look at it in that first time, but I was meant to just crack open a little bit when that guy said to me, there's something on your fourth step that you're missing. When I sat down to do that fifth step with my sponsor, I had to be willing to accept some help and guidance from somebody else which is very hard for a woman like me who believes I can do everything on my own. I wanted to drink when I sat down to do my first fifth step. I also share that when I can, because I think many people come out of it smiling and shining and seeing rainbows. And I thought I must be doing it wrong. It's not working. The difference there is that I continue to follow through with the action. It talks about once we heal spiritually, then we heal physically and mentally. And that was the truth. I had to keep doing work. I had to keep doing the action. It really came for me at steps eight and nine. But I had a loving sponsor who continued to push me, even though I was in pain. I came out of that fifth step and I had this list, right? And things that I saw in my fourth step were things that were really difficult to see. And again, I, I don't mean just when I first did it. It's been plenty of time since I've done that and eagerly asking God to help me see the truth. One of the things is I learned I was dishonest. And I, when I say that, I don't just mean that I stole things because many of us may have, but the level of dishonesty that I have that I ask God to remove is that I fail to see the truth. I ignore the truth. You ever been in a relationship and like, you know that you should not be in that relationship and you're like, but it's so good. Like, this is the one. <laughs> I fail to see the truth that some things just aren't the way that I believe they're supposed to be. Another example of this dishonesty is my mother is not a loving, warm, I love you kind of woman. And I've spent my entire life having expectations that she would behave in a different way. That's a level of dishonesty that continues to harm us. Believing, having expectations of people, the old ideas that I have that I bring into new situations. I spent my whole life feeling like a victim. My greatest character defect is I bring these old ideas into new situations in my life and everybody pays a price. I had to look at all of that when I sit down, not only just the first time, but every day I do my inventory. I have exaggerated th thinking, right? It's like all or nothing, like true alcoholic thinking. 
Either I love you or I hate you, right? Either I think I'm great or I think I'm horrible. I do not know this place of neutrality that I would come to learn as I got to my 10th step. I had to learn that I am littered with character defects. The other one was like, I was told I was judgmental. I was like, that's impossible. Like, I love everybody. What are you talking about? What I learned is that in my judgment, the fact that I get to look at you, I say something, oh, I don't like her. It's because deep down inside, I am fearful of getting to know you. I am afraid to let people in. I am afraid that people will know who I am. I'm afraid of intimacy. But isn't it so much easier to say, hate her, don't like him? I mean, this is how cunning my character defects can be. And so when I got to this place, right, six and seven, where I had to accept the things about myself and be willing to turn them over to God, I was full of fear. My sponsor said to me, like, are you willing to let these things go? And I'm like, of course, because like nobody wants to be those things, right? Like not a single one of us wants to be judgmental and hateful and dishonest. Yet somehow the idea of letting go of those things meant I would have to be somebody that I didn't know. And I was terrified. And in true alcoholic fashion, like the steps are set up, like one prepares us for the next one, right? Four for five, six for seven, eight for nine. Like if that's not true alcoholism, like what is? We need an entire step to prepare us for the one we're actually about to take. We've got to talk about it some more before we actually do it. And when I look at that seven step and I ask God to remove the good and the bad, because I can't even be trusted with the good things. Right. So I would ask God every single day, every single day, even though they are the smallest paragraphs in the big book, they are powerful. And I would say every day, God, remove these things, my dishonesty, my lust, my fear, my low self-esteem, the fact that I attach meaning where meaning doesn't exist. Also remove that I'm a workaholic, that I love too much. And why do we do that? Because I can't be trusted. Being a good worker is great, right? But I have worked so hard sometimes, so I'm not home at dinner time. So I don't have to be available for the holidays. But I get to say I'm working, right? So great. Or like loving people is great, right? We, God wants us to love people. But I will love you to death. Like you can't quit me. What are you talking about? I will love you. <laughs> I need guidance in all the areas of my life, the good and the bad. I've got to reach this place of neutrality. And that's what doing step six and seven allows me to do. I remember thinking as I was told I would go have to make amends, I thought it's impossible. Like I'm not doing it, right? There's a woman that I am very close with and she says the steps were charming. Like some of them I was willing to do and other ones I, I, I wasn't. I was still in some pain as I went on this journey to uh, make my amends and when we talk about eight and nine, we've got to talk about the willingness. I've got to accept that willingness comes in three different ways. My first willingness is, am I physically willing? And this mimics the three parts of our disease, right? So the first part of the willingness is, am I physically willing? Am I willing to get on an airplane, find somebody on Facebook, um, knock on people's doors? The first part is the physical willingness. Then there's the mental willingness. Am I willing? to let go of the character, character defects that have brought me to this amends. The absolute worst thing that I can do is go make an amends for something that I'm still doing. And the simplest way to use that as an example is, I can't apologize or make an amends 
for stealing something if I'm consistently stealing something. I am in direct conflict with what God is asking me to do. And so I go to make these amends, which are not apologies. And the third part of the willingness is, am I spiritually willing to make this amends? The instruction that I was given, along with the instruction I give when working with people, is we say at the end, is there anything else I need to make an amends for? You better be pretty spiritually fit to hear the answer to some of those things. (laughs) I have to be spiritually willing to believe that there could be something that I am not sure I need to make an amends for. I shared before that for me, the real connection to God came in steps eight and nine. I had a, a partner, a boyfriend who I had done some very terrible things to. And it took me quite some time to meet up with him to make an amends. Um, he did not want to make an amends, which is so ironic because I was like convinced I never hurt anybody, right? And after some time, he agreed to meet. He told me things when I asked him, is there anything else I need to make an amends for that I didn't remember? And if I'm honest with you, they were more painful than the things I thought that I was going to make an amends for. When I drove away from that amends, I felt hurt and wounded and in pain. And for the first time in my life, I didn't want to drink under those circumstances. And I knew that that was God working. Because Linda, left to her own devices, always drinks under those circumstances. When things don't go my way, I want to drink. That amends told me that there are things that I have done to people in my drinking that I may not know. And I continue to this day to remain open to hearing the things that I may not want to hear. As I went through, and at this point, right, we do the work from four to nine, and God shines up that marble again. I get it back. Picture this visual moment of literally getting back the thing that I was meant to be, the thing that I've dirtied up with all of these character defects. And in the 10th step, we get this will back. And I love when people say, like, I get my will back. And I'm like, do you really want your will back? Because my will is like not a good one, right? (laughs) My will steals from you. My will cheats on you. My will does all sorts of painful things. What I actually get back in the 10th step is the will that God had given me before my will got in the way. I said before, I'm a very visual person. And so I just want you to think for a minute, the way that I think of sort of step 10 coming back in alignment, because I've described my alcoholism as being out of alignment, is that what I end up doing is if I've got my will on one hand and God's will on the other hand. And everything in between the two of those things are all of the character defects that we have learned about ourselves, the dishonesty, the lust, the pain, the the attaching meaning where it doesn't exist, right? One of my favorite ones. And what I have to do every day is essentially squish out those character defects, get rid of those things. And guess what happens? I am in perfect alignment and my hands are in prayer form. So as I embark on steps 10, 11, 12, those are some great dance moves, by the way. Don't think I didn't see them. As we go through steps 10, 11, and 12, my entire job now is literally to constantly squish out those character defects and get into alignment. Something happens during my day, I get knocked out of alignment, right? I get further out. 
And I got this 10 step to kick me back into alignment to that place of neutrality. Think about perhaps early on in your sobriety. It's like you were afraid to go anywhere where there would be alcohol. Now I think of myself, right? We talk about recoiling from it as if it's a hot flame. But with some time sober, it isn't about the neutrality with the alcohol. It's about the neutrality with people. It's about the neutrality with my character defects. What happens in this is they talk about a day at a time, right? And when I first came in, they'd be like, you're going to stay sober a day at a time. And I'm like, how the heck am I going to do that? I want to drink, right? I want to act out. I want to shop. I want to, whatever your poison is at this point, right? Because we've gone through some other ones since we've given up drinking. What they mean by a day at a time is I essentially take steps four through 12 every single day. I look for those character defects. I turn them over. I consult God. I make an amends if I have to. And I resolutely turn my thoughts to others. And that's what keeps me in alignment. What I love most about the 10 step, right? It talks about alcohol being a subtle foe. For me at this point in my life, it's the character defects that are the subtle foe. And they are breathing on my neck the way alcohol did in the beginning, right? It's my partner does something I don't like, and it's the instinct to want to act out and correct his behavior. It's when my employees are late and I think, does he know who I am, right? These are the things that are there. And what happens in that step 10 is I recognize it as it's happening and I make an amends if I have to. I think it's helpful to share examples of how this works in my life today. And so while I hate this story and I don't know why God wants me to tell you this one right now, but apparently I'm going to tell you. My boyfriend uh, was in construction and he was on a very important job um, and I hated how much time it was taking away from us. And we were in the grocery store one night and he was on the phone because of his job and I didn't like it. And so I turned to this random guy at the deli counter and I said, hey, what do you want for dinner tonight? Because it doesn't seem like my boyfriend's coming home tonight. Now, I think it's funny, right? I think there's humor in that. We leave the grocery store and I get in the car and I immediately know how hurtful that was because this is what happens when you're connected to God. I immediately knew that what I said to him was unfair, hurtful, dishonest. And so I call my girlfriend and, and not the one that's going to say, oh, what a jerk, right? The one that you have in this program that's going to tell you how selfish and wrong you were. And I call her. And by the time I get back to the house, I say to him, I felt unseen, unheard. I felt not important. Because ultimately, that's what's under that, that, act, that reaction, right? That's what's under that sarcasm, the tone of voice that I have. And I was too afraid in that moment to say, I feel unseen, unheard. It's very hard for a person like me to share those things, right? To be able to see the truth. The great news is that I've got a connection to God who immediately tells me when I've done something wrong. And it's moments like that that have allowed my relationship with my partner today to be beautiful. I'm not visiting Rikers on the weekends, right? So let's talk about that difference. But that I get to be in a place where I can speak my truth and not be afraid. What helps me to do that is this constant work of prayer and meditation, right? And I remember people saying, and like still to this day, right? It's like, 
you've got to pray, you've got to meditate. And I was like afraid to like be by myself. I was afraid to even like sit quietly. I didn't know how to sit quietly. One of the greatest things we can do for ourselves is to put aside everything we think we know about prayer and meditation. Because I've spent so much time in the, you know, 12 years, whatever it is that I've been sober thinking, it has to look a certain way. It's got to be five minutes. It's got to be seven minutes. Maybe it should be 11 minutes. Maybe it's got to be a half hour. And like, if you're going to Zooms all the time, you hear one person quote a book and I'm like already on Amazon. I'm like, that's it. That's the book that's going to get me to God, right? All these old ideas about prayer and meditation. What I've learned is I just need to get quiet. I just need, I don't, I might not need any book. I just need to make room for something other than me. My first couple of months of sobriety, as I struggled with this relationship with God, I would say certain things like my eyes are blinking, my heart is beating, and my blood is flowing. All things that had nothing to do with Linda. That was the simplicity of that prayer and meditation. It has absolutely changed over time. It has become stronger. It has become difficult at certain things that have happened in my life. But the thing that remains consistent is that I always make the time for that prayer and meditation. And we get confused because like we think it starts in the morning. The most important thing is it's at night, right? Every night I sit and I take that inventory. I don't always write it down in true honesty. I run through it, right? Talk about it. And what I always ask myself at the end of every night is, was I helpful? And even more importantly, was I helpful when nobody was watching? And for me, those are good barometers of where I am today. I also say to myself, what could I have done differently? And I go through the questions that are outlined in the big book because those are the things that prepare me for the next morning. When I ask myself, what could I have done differently? Well, I could have been more patient. I could not have been judgmental. I should have made more time for a sponsee, right? Whatever it is. And I need that for my morning meditation. I need to ask God to help me with the very things that I saw. And the other thing that's like difficult about prayer and meditation is when I become aligned and quiet enough, what happens is I hear things that I'm sometimes afraid to hear. Recently, probably about a year ago, I was at work, right? Moving along, great job. Things are going fine. And consistently in nightly meditation, I kept hearing God say, you need a new job. And sometimes when you meditate with your eyes closed, like you kind of open one up and you're like, wait a minute, who said that, right? Like, I don't really think that's what I should be hearing right now. And yet somehow or other, I'm in the place in my life where I said, okay, okay, God, like, here we go. We're embarking on this thing and we're going to take a new job. Not because I wanted to, but because I trust in what I'm hearing in meditation. And that wasn't like as quick as it actually happened, right? Let's be honest. The best part about our 11 step is it says, we pray for the strength to carry it out. Because there are going to be things that we hear that we are terrified to hear, right? Get out of that relationship, stay in that relationship, work through it, go to school, don't go to school. When I am being so specific with my prayers and bringing these difficult things to God, I will get answers even the ones I am afraid to hear. And then I get to pray for the help to understand them. 
what prayer and meditation allows me to do is literally accept people for who they are. It allows me to really believe that everybody is a child of God. I think to myself, right, I go to the same deli every single morning and how I react or respond to the same guy behind the counter isn't about him. It's about me. Have I done what I needed to do to get right with the world in that moment? And again, put it all aside, candle, no candle, Indian style, right? Like, I mean, all these crazy things we do as alcoholics about what it's supposed to look like. Just make the time. Today, as I'm living in 10, 11, and 12, and I remember the first time I went through my steps, my sponsor said, are you ready to do some work? And I was like, ready to do some work? Like, I just did a whole bunch of work. What are you talking about? And she said, the real work, the real work is working with other people. That's the absolute grace that we get to be in this position to help other people shine those marbles. I am a person that is riddled with fear and uncomfortable and doesn't feel like she can be helpful. Yet somehow or other, when I am sitting with another person, reading the book and going through these steps, I feel like I have purpose. I feel like I survived what I had gone through to be in a position to share the story, to let people know that something out there exists and to help them get to that thing. Sponsorship is a, a, a privilege, right? To me, there's no other way to put it, but a privilege. And we'll go back to that third step, right? Where I turned my will over to God, which meant every single day I take that third step, it means I do it for you too. For anybody that I may ever come across as a person I will work with. I can't run my life, which means I can't run your life. So when sponsees call about, should I stay in the relationship? Should I get a mortgage? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, do you see my relationship history? Like definitely not who you should be asking about relationship advice. Did you pray? Did you ask God for help? Can we write an inventory on it? Where are you with your amends? What we do as sponsors is we walk side by side. Such an important differentiation right? This isn't about me knowing more than you or you knowing more than that person, or you're going to listen to what I say and I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm literally a woman that cracks beer cans on her head, who has gone through this action to get to God, to allow me to see the truth inside of myself. The irony of this entire thing, right? is like, after I've looked everywhere, like literally everywhere else to find God, it's been inside me the entire time. The absolute last place on earth I ever would have looked was inside of me. I just had to get rid of all of the things that were blocking me. And then once I've done that, the other last place I'm going to look is inside of you. Because even though I'm terrified of those relationships, what allows me to continue that relationship with God is this privilege to work with other people. Uh, Zoom, I understand some people have got their criticism about Zoom, but it has allowed me to work with people all over the world. It's allowed me to be on different time zones and reading the book. And my first sponsee, English was her second language. And I remember thinking, God, like, hold on. That's like not how I thought this was supposed to go. Like she had about 20 something years sober. I had two maybe at that point. She asked me to sponsor her. 
and her English was not great. And yet she sat there with her Spanish big book. And I sat there with my English big book. And whatever happened there between the two of us transcended physical language because we knew exactly what we were saying to each other. And that, that's the real work. When I first came into AA, and this is just another story about how we never know when God is going to tell us we need to be helpful. My first sponsor, lovely woman, we're friends to this day. She's great. Um, I asked her to sponsor me. And after about a couple of months, it just wasn't working. I would say maybe four, four years later, I was at Stepping Stones, um, where I am, where I live up over in Bedford. Um, and we were singing Christmas carols at, at Bill's house, right? I mean, definitely not what I thought I'd be doing in sobriety, but I was singing Christmas carols. And this very woman calls me and she says, I want to kill myself. Can you help me? And I left there and I met that woman at a meeting. And if you don't believe in God, this idea that the woman that would sponsor me would later become my sponsee just shows you that we never get to decide when we are going to be helpful. Our lives can change in a minute. I've gone from someone who wanted to kill herself. When people say to me, what's the greatest thing that you got from Alcoholics Anonymous? I think, yes, I've gotten material things. I've got a degree and a partner and, and a car and stuff, stuff, stuff. The greatest thing that I've gotten today is I don't want to kill myself. The greatest thing I have today is that I recognize why I woke up from that terrible assault in that hotel room. I recognize today why my sobriety date is the same exact day as that assault. Because the day that I should have died becomes the day that I get my life back. And it's continuing to work every single day to get the self-will and God's will together and removing those character defects. The question I ask myself every day is how free do I want to be? How much work do I want to do? Where am I with amends, praying, meditating, working with other people? Where am I with that place where we get to go out and help other people shine their marbles? The greatest thing in life I got from Alcoholics Anonymous is not wanting to kill myself. This is the only place on earth where I can take the things that I've wanted to drink and die over and be helpful to somebody else. Only here, only in Alcoholics Anonymous. Pretty sure I'm at my time or close to it. I thank you all for letting me be of service today. It's been beautiful to be here. Thank you. Recording.